break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 20th of April, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about profiteering by big oil companies. Surprise, surprise. But before we get to that, we want to talk about the Solomon Islands, which are caught right in the middle of the new Cold War between the West and China. The Solomon Islands is a small country. Around 700,000 people clustered across six major islands and also containing hundreds of smaller islands in the broader chain. For those in the United States, you are most familiar with the Solomons, no doubt, as the site of the famous World War II Battle of Guadalcanal. Recently, however, the Solomons has become the center of a geopolitical firestorm, particularly in Australia. Last week, the Solomons confirmed they had signed a new security deal with China, setting off an uproar in Australia and the broader Western foreign policy establishment. Australia's main opposition party called it the biggest foreign policy blunder since World War II. The United States, which hasn't had an embassy in the Solomons for 30 years, is now sending a high-profile delegation to the islands this week to try to see if they can get the government to change course on the issue of developing a relationship with China. And this is all happening while Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison is scrambling in the press to make it look like he didn't drop the ball, quote-unquote, in terms of managing Australia's foreign relations in what seems to be a potential major hit to his attempt to be reelected. Campaigning's going on now. Why all the uproar? Well, what's happening is probably best understood in a general sense by looking at the comments of Australia's Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, that the Solomons, after this deal, are set to become, quote, our own little Cuba, end quote. As the comparison implies, the Solomons have become a flashpoint because of the new Cold War atmosphere the U.S. and Australia are seeking to impose in Asia aimed at China. There are more or less two cross-cutting issues that have brought us to this point. And first, that's the geostrategic realities already alluded to. And second, there's also the internal politics of the Solomons. The Solomons matter for two main strategic regions. First, its location just to the east of Papua New Guinea and to the north of Australia is strategic in terms of Pacific commerce flows and certainly to the flow of commerce in and out of Australia. Second, The U.S.-led anti-China strategy in the Pacific is heavily based on trying to contain China within the most immediate chain of islands off that nation's coast. The basic thought is that between Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and the Philippines, the U.S. can create a powerful fence, quote-unquote, around China's access to the Pacific Ocean. And further, by empowering those countries and others to press their territorial claims in the South China Sea, most significantly— It further denies, or is at least attempting to deny, China the use of smaller staging islands that could counter this strategy of containment. 
So all in all, the strategy is to be able to bottle up China, that is, contain their ability to have influence in the region, and make sure the Pacific remains a quote-unquote American lake, subject to total U.S. dominance and leverage over all Asian nations, since the U.S. will have the control over all crucial sea lanes with its huge military. So the Solomon security deal is freaking out those who want a new Cold War because it mitigates against that. The terms of the deal are not fully known, but from what we do know, the deal seems to formalize that Chinese Navy vessels have basing rights in the Solomons, i.e. that they can stop there and refuel without prior approval. And also, China is giving a security guarantee to the Solomons that in the event of local unrest, Chinese troops and police will come to the help of the government. And so that means that China now has a friend outside of that initial chain of islands that the United States is trying to use to bottle up China and prevent them from being able to move freely around the the Pacific or potentially challenge the total U.S. leverage over all Asian countries that exist because of the American control of the sea lands in the Pacific and more broadly in Southeast Asia. Now, of course, opposition by the U.S. and Australia to this deal is totally hypocritical. The U.S. has similar basing agreements, including many bases with, you know, over 100 countries, seemingly two-thirds of the countries on Earth. And Australia literally sent troops to the Solomons for internal security reasons last year and has had a similar role in the Solomons on and off for decades. So clearly, this isn't about what's in the deal between the Solomon Islands and China, but that there is a deal between the Solomon Islands and China. Also relevant here is that the Solomons recently dropped recognition of Taiwan and recognized the People's Republic of China, a major shift in the island's longtime pro-Taiwan stance, and also, of course, another major flashpoint in the context of the new Cold War. As we mentioned before, a lot of what's happening in terms of this deal actually coming to fruition is deeply tied to the reality of the politics of the Solomon Islands. The current prime minister has led the country a couple times before, even coming to power once in 2000 through a coup of sorts. And since then, he's been in and out of leadership, returning in 2019 after leading a coalition of independence to victory in parliamentary elections that year. The main opposition, which is rooted in the most populous island, has claimed the deal is rooted in the desire of the government to repress opposition to its rule. And indeed, the Solomons have seen several periods of unrest in the past couple decades, and as mentioned before, had previously used Australian troops to quell those situations. Given that the opposition is very hostile to China, it doesn't seem terribly far-fetched to assume the government in the Solomons is, in fact, looking for a security guarantee from a country that wouldn't be motivated to use unrest as a cover for regime change, as Australia, in fact, might be, given the broader issues in the Australian polity and being pushed by the United States about the Solomons working with China. So if they're working with China, they call in Australian troops. How does that end up? The bigger question, in a way, is whether the threat of unrest really comes from the opposition specifically. Many commentators have noted that the opposition-led protests that turned into something of an uprising last year, and also previously from 1998 to 2003, were not really motivated by opposition politics per se, as much as they were motivated by the masses of poor people taking the opportunity to register their discontent at the fact that a large section of the population lives in poverty despite lucrative timber and bauxite exports. The government's security deal with China follows on China investing nearly $1 billion to revive a gold mine and build out infrastructure. Part of what they say is an effort to develop the country to everyone's benefit. And of course, deepening relations with China does offer many opportunities for the Solomons, and it seems almost impossible to imagine how the lives of everyday people there could be significantly improved absent those relations. But whether or not that's what the government is going for is yet to be seen, but it does speak to these internal issues. For instance, if 
The issue of poverty is alleviated in the Solomon Islands. The government's less likely to need the idea of a security guarantee to suppress opposition. But if they want to just use this as a, another way to shore their own lucrative existence while continuing to let people live in poverty, then perhaps there is something to the claims being made by the opposition about this deal. But nevertheless, we don't know. We'll have to see how it plays out. And either way, Australia and the U.S., who have also claimed that China is trying to trap the Solomons into some sort of bad economic deal, were more than happy to support previous governments that set up the highly unequal export-based status quo in the first place. So again, whatever the various motivations internally in the Solomon Islands, the evolving relationship between the Solomons and China is only becoming a major geopolitical flashpoint because the sovereign decisions of the Solomons is throwing a wrench into the plans of the U.S. and Australia to isolate and contain China. This all shows that from the biggest nation to the smallest, from the richest to the poorest, the U.S. and other Western nations are forcing all countries to quote-unquote take a side in the new Cold War with China to disregard what might be best for them in exchange for what's best for the tiny clique of Western elites who control global affairs. It's this sort of rivalry and competition driving massive increases in weapons designed to destroy the world and preventing massive increases in the types of things that can make the planet more livable. Major oil and gas companies are raking in huge amounts of cash right now due to the increase in oil prices and gas prices that began with the war in Ukraine. Of course, those companies are claiming that it's all just the cost of doing business and that there really isn't that much they could do to avoid these massive increases in prices at the pump. Now, on its face, that might make sense, right? I mean, the war in Ukraine has increased the price of oil. That's true. But the question really is, does that mean gas prices have to be spiking in the same way they are? And the answer to that question is, well, no. The red flag that oil companies are taking us all for a bit of a ride here is the rise in stock buybacks and dividend payments among big oil corporations. As a new study from Friends of the Earth Bailout Watch and Public Citizen notes, quote, in the first two months of 2022, seven companies' boards authorized their corporate treasuries to buy back and retire $24.3 billion in stock, a 15% increase over all of the buybacks authorized in 2021. The total since the price spikes began is $45.6 billion. So just a few months and At least seven of the largest oil companies on the planet give $45 billion to super-rich investors. Stock buybacks are when a company buys back its own stock as a bonus for investors. Essentially, it's a way to let investors cash out for more than what they bought in for. And even more, since it reduces the number of shares out there, it means the value of the stock that's left goes up in value. Dividends are basically the same thing. It's a premium a company pays you for holding its stock. Both serve the same purpose, to make it valuable to hold one company's stock and thus to attract more investment. So clearly, when companies are spending huge sums buying back stock, that's money they could have used to, let's say, help provide some cushion to people paying for gas by using their own profits to help prevent cost increases from turning into spiking gas prices. But I mean... Why would they do that to help you when they can help a handful of rich investors on Wall Street? In addition to what we stated earlier about the just over $45 billion in stock buybacks since gas prices started spiking, the report, which looked at the 20 largest oil companies in the U.S., also noted, quote, 
More than half the companies boosted their dividends, often extravagantly, in January and February. Of the 11 companies raising their dividends, nine were increases of more than 15% and four were increases of more than 40%. 11 companies have increased their payouts by at least 100%, some from zero since the first quarter of 2021. They go on to further note that, quote, six companies have begun paying additional dividends on top of their routine quarterly payments, including by implementing new variable dividends based on company earnings, a way of directing windfall profits immediately into private hands without any possibility of investment, employee benefits, or other uses. So far in 2022, these companies have started paying out an initial $3 billion in special windfall dividends, end quote. So just again. They could have used these billions of dollars to help keep gas prices low for you. Instead, they're using it as a handout for super rich investors. And one notable thing the report details is that in March, the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank conducted a survey of oil and gas executives. The majority of them stated they were holding back investment into their companies because of, quote, investor pressure to maintain capital discipline despite high oil prices. And almost none of them cited regulations or lack of capital for their lack of investment. That's an important window into what's going on in the fossil fuel industry currently. It says that on the one hand, most investors feel that the transition to non-fossil fuels is coming sooner or later. So no point in investing hugely there. Better to just hold a limited amount and get what you can while the fuel still burns which is why these companies are undoubtedly so eager to shovel cash to rich investors to offset the feeling that the investments could soon become stranded assets as oil and gas infrastructure is not needed, which of course means people won't invest. Further, it also shows the oil industry's constant harangues that they are unable to do anything anywhere because of climate activists is false. And in fact, it's a smokescreen to help them get out from under investor pressure to show discipline, because that's only going to happen if the threat of a clean energy transition recedes. But if they are saying that, well, the only way to get lower prices at the pump, which everyone who drives and, quite frankly, everyone who has some involvement in anything affected by gas prices wants to see that if the only way to do that is to drill more, then it puts pressure on the government to, of course, roll back the possibility of a clean energy transition. So oil companies are getting us coming and going. They're making huge profits on the rise of the price of oil right now, using those profits to boost investment in the industry and pretending like the only way to resolve the issue of high prices is to drill more whatever the consequences to the planet. So just to reiterate, they're causing the price hikes, profiting from the price hikes, making the 1%, especially the investor class, even richer because of the price hikes. Then they're using the anger from the price hikes to destroy the planet you live on while they get even richer by pressuring the government into drilling, allowing them to drill all over the place for more oil. It's an amazingly dirty cycle in many ways, and just even more evidence that there isn't a way out of our climate catastrophe as long as capitalist market incentives are at play. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at 
T-Newsroom.